It's day 25 of Heart Dive 365. I'm your Bible study friend, Kanoi. Welcome to the Heart Dive Podcast. Welcome back to Bible Study, friends. We are in Genesis chapters 38 through 40 today, and we are just going to watch Jacob's family continue to crumble. We're taking a little bit of a detour, though, as we take a look at the life of Judah. So let's recap so far what is going on with these kids of Jacob's. We've got Simeon and Levi, who have just committed mass murder in Shechem. Reuben defiled Bilhah, the concubine. The brothers wanted to kill Joseph before Judah finally convinced them, no, let's just sell him into slavery instead. And so now we will see more of Judah's account. But before that, if you could please help us out, if Bible study is part of your day and your journey, if you could please give this video a thumbs up, just hit that like button for us. That's your way of partnering with us and saying, yes, I think this could be helpful for somebody else. Also, make sure you are subscribed to our podcast or our channel and make sure that notification bell is on if you do want to know when each podcast comes out each day. You can also receive our daily newsletter. Holly sends those out every single day as soon as I post our podcast. And so if you do want to get that, you can go on over to our website, heartdive.org slash newsletter. If you were receiving them before and you're not now, I highly suggest that you go over there and re-enter your email address or respond to one of the emails that we have been sending out to remind you. Holly did a really great job sending out a little video tutorial in case you were unaware of how to navigate our website, heartdive.org. Also make sure you are in our Facebook group if you want to join the discussions. We've got weekly discussion groups going on. We've also got a prayer room on Mondays where our prayer warriors are taking requests and interceding for everyone. So make sure that you're in there. There's a great community over there. People are very encouraging. And we've got an amazing team who is running that side of the ship. But otherwise, let's go ahead and jump into the Word and prepare our hearts. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. We thank you, Lord, for who you are, for being our good Father, for being our friend, for being our healer, our provider, for being the banner under which we stand, where we know we have victory and we fight from victory. So we declare that today, Lord, whatever fights people are going through, the storms that we may be weathering, we know that you are with us in it. And we trust God that you are walking with us and that you are fighting for us. So I pray that we hold on to that today, Lord, and allow this time to be a moment of peace where we can just come here and humble our hearts before you, simple and beautiful communion to be able to speak with you, Lord. And I just pray that our ears will be open. We got two ears for a reason, Lord, and only one mouth. It's because you want us to listen more than we talk. And so I just pray that you'll do that today. And Lord, may my mouth that speaks today be only your words. I pray that I'll get out of the way so, Holy Spirit, you can be magnified and glorified. We love you. We want to be able to honor you in all things that we do, in word, in deed, and even in our thoughts. And so I pray that you'll purify us now. Anything that may defile us in that way, God, I pray that you'll move it out that you will make room for your Holy Spirit to dwell. We know that it cannot coexist with sin in our lives. We know that we do not make a very nice home for the Holy Spirit whenever we've got sin that is overtaking us. And so I just pray, Lord, that we repent, that we walk away, that we ask for your forgiveness, where we may have stepped over the line or where we may have fallen short or simply disobeyed. I pray that you also help us to forgive others, Lord, so that we do not keep ourselves embittered 
and we do not hold on to anger or rage or anything else that might cause us to go even deeper into sin. And so I pray that you help us to deal with that today. Lord, show us how. Let this time with you be undistracted. I pray that you will silence all notifications, Lord, and that includes the lies of the enemy. We want to hear your voice and yours alone. We love you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're starting off here in chapter 38, again, taking a detour from Joseph's life as we take a look at Judah. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside. Never a good thing to turn aside, but nevertheless, he is. He's taking a detour to a certain Adulamite, which by the way, Adullam was the hill country northwest of Hebron. So this is Canaanite territory, whose name was Hira. So this would become his friend and confidant. Again, reminder, he is a Canaanite. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kizib when she bore him. And I just realized I did not look up the names today and their meaning. So let's just take a look really quickly in the Handy Danny, all the names in the Bible. This is one of the resources that I often consult whenever I want to find the meaning of a name or a place, just to see if there's any sort of significance, if we can make a connection. So when we look at Ur, Ur means watchful. There are three Urs in the Old Testament. Then we're going to take a look at Onan. Onan means strong. So the second son of Judah. Okay, so watchful and strong. And then Shelah means prayer. Okay, interesting. I don't know that I see a connection right now because their lives are cut pretty short, but nevertheless, if you want to write those down, something might be revealed to you a little bit later. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Her name means palm. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And I said, what did he do? We don't ever really know. And the Lord put him to death. Now, I know some people would look at that and be like, well, gosh, that is really cruel of God to do that. But we've got to remember, if we're looking at the heart of God, he's not a cruel God. He's a very merciful, long-suffering, kind, and gracious God. And so, all we can deduce from that from the character of God when we know his heart is to say this was his mercy in ending his life. Perhaps he saw further down the line where he would continue in that line of wickedness, taking down a bunch of people with him along the way, because that's what sin does. It pulls other people in. And so God knew that in this moment, he had to have mercy on everybody else and perhaps even on the life of Ur and cut it short. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother in law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. So this is what would be known as a leveret marriage. And we will see later on that this actually becomes part of Mosaic law, where if a husband dies without a son, it would be the duty of the next son in line to then marry that woman, that widow, and have children with her so that the name of that son could be carried on. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. And so whenever he went into the brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. So he had no problem sleeping with his brother's wife, but he wasn't about to have children with her because he was probably being pretty selfish and saying, I don't want to carry on my brother's name. I want to carry on my own name. I want my own wife. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. So some people have used these verses as a way to say that the fact that he was wasting his semen on the ground was wicked. But it actually, I believe, was the fact that he defied what his 
father had told him to do. He was being disobedient to that, and he was also dishonoring his brother. I think that was more of the sin, but some people say, no, it's because he was trying to control fertility here. In a sense, he was being the birth control. Verse 11, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house until Shelah, my son, grows up. So, this is the last son here. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So, Tamar went and remained in her father's house. And this was pretty typical in this time that a widow would remain under the headship of the father-in-law. Now, in the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. So, they're still BFFs here. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and sat at the entrance to Inaam, which is on the road to Timnah. And we will see Timnah again because Samson also goes to Timnah, which doesn't end well for him. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So basically, Judah did not hold true to his promise that he would give his last son to Tamar. And so she is now acting out of desperation and she is going to pose as a prostitute. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what will you give me that you may come in to me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. Now this would have been, I guess, sufficient payment in this time for an evening with a prostitute. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. And he said, well, what pledge shall I give you? And she replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So what is a signet? A signet was kind of like a credit card or a driver's license, a state ID. It was usually a ring or something they wore around their neck. And it would have an engraving on it so that when they would stamp it into either clay or some sort of wax, it would then harden as their signature. So this would have been his identification. And the cord could have been something that signified his wealth and as well as his staff being also something that would identify him. It would have had some sort of engraving. And so when we look at these three things and the symbolism of them, a signet again being his identity, the cord, his wealth and possessions, and his staff, meaning it showed his position. And anytime we go into sin or even begin to compromise, these are the things that also will come with us. Our identity will be compromised. The things that we have will be compromised, as well as the position that we might hold also compromised. But he wasn't thinking about that at the time. He was not thinking with his head. And so he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So her only intent of being a prostitute was just to trick Judah. Now, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where's the cult prostitute? Now, by the way, this term cult prostitute also may be shown as harlot in your translation. That word harlot actually translates to holy woman. And so when we look at how this could have possibly turned into the term prostitute, 
Well, it could have also implied priestess. And we know that biblically, priests could have only been men. And so, this term here, Kedisha, which is the Hebrew word, the root form of this word being holy or set apart, it became derogatory because, again, only men could be priests, but also it was associated with pagan worship, which is why the ESV translation talks about it being a cult prostitute. So, where is the cult prostitute who was at in Nahum at the roadside. And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we're going to be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Now, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. So, she's probably showing at this point, three months pregnant. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. Now, this, mind you, would have been probably punishable by death. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. Now, when I say punishable by death, I'm not saying that that means God is saying that immorality means punishable by death, even though all sin, the wages of that is death, but by the law in itself. That's where we would have seen this taking place. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, these meaning the signet cord and staff, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. So I asked, was this a sincere statement by saying that she is more righteous than Judah? I mean, that's probably the truth at this point, but we'll hold on to that question. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her room. And remember, twins were considered a special blessing by God. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. So, they would do this. They would put a scarlet thread on the firstborn so that there would be no mistaking which baby was the firstborn. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zira. So, Perez actually means breach and Zira means dawn. Now, an important fact here is that from Perez is where the lineage of David will come. And of course, that leads to Jesus. And boy, was this not a dive into the abyss, right? It almost felt like a condensed Job detour out of the book of Genesis. And why is this account right in the middle of Joseph's story? Well, I believe that it kind of serves as a way to contrast the life of Joseph. It's almost like the way that jewelers will showcase a diamond against a black background. And when the light shines through that diamond, it becomes so much more brilliant against the darkness. But the even greater picture here is one of grace. And we won't hear much of Judah's life from here on out, yet Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. And Tamar and her sons will be listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Aren't you so grateful that all of our mistakes and doing things our own way and all of our selfishness is not enough to completely cut us off? You see, Jesus pulled us into the family whenever he died on that cross. And we too are links within his lineage now. So heart check, where do you see God's grace bestowed unto you? 
Chapter 39, Joseph and Potiphar's wives. We're back here in the story of Joseph. Potiphar, his name means devoted to the sun. So this is probably in correlation to pagan worship. Now, Joseph had been brought down to Egypt and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. Now, this word officer also translates to what is known as a eunuch. And if you don't know what a eunuch is, these were typically people in the king's court who were actually castrated so that they would either watch over the harem or the women of the court, therefore would not be a threat because they would have no sexual drive. And therefore they draw this conclusion that Potiphar may have actually been a eunuch. I don't know how true that is because he was married. And I was trying to look up whether or not eunuchs got married in the Bible. I didn't find much. I didn't spend a lot of time trying to research it, but we'll keep it in mind because it could kind of make sense here. Verse two, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he had made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. So we see here that we can indeed be a blessing to our workplace whenever the presence of God is with us. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. You know, one of the greatest character traits of Joseph is the way that he was a faithful steward. I mean, no matter where he was or what his circumstances were, because he had just been taken out of a pit, sold into slavery. I mean, he's about to be put back into prison, yet he is still able to earn the favor of everyone around him. And it's because he's not a negative Nancy. I mean, he's not moping around and whining about what is so terrible in life. He instead focuses on what he does have and he remains content. He just keeps his head down and he works for the glory of God. And Paul drives this point home too. I mean, he says that whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all for the glory of the Lord. You see, God's not going to get glory if we're always complaining our way through life. So heart check. Are you faithfully stewarding what you have been given? Or are you more focused on what you don't have and what is wrong in life? Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. This is a rare occasion where we will see the word of God speak about a man's beauty or the fact that he's handsome. We'll see it in David as well as Absalom, I believe. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So notice that he's more more concerned about sinning against God than anything here. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. So this is where we start to make a little bit more sense about the fact that maybe Potiphar was a eunuch. Maybe this is why she so desperately wants to be with Joseph. It doesn't justify it, but it explains why she might have such a desperation for him. Or it could just be because he's so handsome and she's just falling weak. Verse 11, but one day, when he went out into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. 
but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. So he ran for his life. Good on you, Joseph. You know, the Bible says to flee from youthful lusts, right? And so that's exactly what he is doing here. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, see, he's brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Now, this would have been a racial slur at the time because Egyptians actually scorned Semitic Canaanites. He came into me to lie with me and I cried out with a loud voice, you big liar. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until his master came home. And she told him the same story saying, that Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. So this is two out of the four times in the book of Genesis that we will see the word Hebrew used. And again, she's not using it in a very nice manner. Now, as soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. Now, was he angry at Joseph or was he angry at the fact that his wife is trying to say this, but he perhaps knows it isn't true? Because technically, Joseph at this point, if it were true and if he believed it were true, should probably be killed. But look what happens. And Joseph's master took him and put him into prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. Now, this is more like house arrest. This isn't a deep, dark, smelly dungeon. But the Lord was with Joseph, once again, his promised presence, and showed him steadfast love, his mercy, and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all of the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, this made me think about that term, favor ain't fair. Have you ever heard that? I mean, you'll typically hear it jokingly thrown around in church circles, and it implies that God gives favor to whomever he pleases, and it ain't fair, so just deal with it. And usually... The person saying it is the one who has been blessed and they're kind of joking like favoring fair people like sorry you didn't get blessed and I did. And while this phrase is partially true, I mean God will bless whoever he wants, it can also dilute God's desire for relationship and partnership with us, which will take some faithfulness on our part because some people will also say favor ain't fair, and they'll be saying it to the person who is being blessed, implying that they had nothing to do with it, that this was just God's favor on their life. But we've got to remember what the Bible says about favor, that He will give it to those who are humble and upright in spirit, those who tremble at His word, or those who bind love and faithfulness around their neck, or those who seek good or seek wisdom and have good understanding. And these are things that generally happen behind closed doors. It's where these people don't see. It's the time spent on their knees and in the word or in intimate worship. That is where favor is being poured out. Or it's even in the times like Joseph, where he was thrown into the pit by others or sold into slavery, yet he still faithfully endured. See, God is watching and he is storing up that favor for those who are faithful. So heart check. Whenever you see someone's blessings, do you chalk it up? to just plain old favor? Or do you see their faithfulness as well? 
Now here in chapter 40, keep an eye out for Jesus through the life of Joseph. Because remember, Joseph's life can oftentimes be a picture of Jesus. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. So they sinned against Pharaoh. And to me, this shows me the two prisoners that Jesus is crucified in between. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. So some scholars believe that perhaps there was some sort of plot of poisoning the king. And of course, the cupbearer and the baker who are in high places of position would have been the first suspects. I mean, they're the ones who either make the food for Pharaoh or the cupbearer is the one who drinks of his cup to make sure that it isn't poisoned. Now, the captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them and he attended them. So, Joseph here given favor, but still a servant. And they continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each of his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? So here we see a picture of Joseph being so compassionate and so caring about the two people who were with him. And they said to him, we have had dreams and there was no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So clearly Joseph knows that he has the gift of interpretation. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand and I took the grapes and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. So Joseph is declaring his innocence here and definitely not accepting defeat. I mean, sometimes we can do that, right? We can just think that we're in the pit of life and be like, I give up. I'm not even going to try anymore. But Joseph is like, no, I am not going to accept this as the end of my life. I'm going to continue to press and endure until I am set free. Now, lots of symbolism here. Of course, the three days symbolizing the three days in which Jesus is resurrected, freed from death to life. And many of us know this phrase, remember me, which points to communion. And of course, the elements of communion being the wine and the bread, symbolizing the blood and the flesh. And of course, the cupbearer and the baker, you can't help but kind of link all of these things together. And Jesus, of course, being innocent as well. Now, when the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, so I don't know if he was kind of scared to speak his dream. He wanted to wait to see what the cupbearer's dream would behold. He said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head and in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. And he at this point must have been like, okay, yeah, this sounds good. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head 
again, well, it's okay, sounds good so far, from you, meaning he's going to take your head off and hang you on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. Now, I find this really commendable of Joseph to not be afraid to tell him the interpretation of this dream. Because to me, this shows that he's not afraid of the whole truth. He's not just going to talk about the stuff that is fluffy and good and that is going to tickle the ears of those who are listening. And why is this important? Because I feel like we have gotten away from the scary parts of the Bible. We don't talk a lot about hell and the realness of it and the necessity of repentance and walking away from sin. I mean, a lot of the time when you go to a church service, it feels really good. You know, we talk about the goodness of God and the grace of God, and we should. But I believe that as churches, we also need to be covering the entire word. There's a reason why God spoke the words that He did. He intended for all of these words to be declared throughout the nations. And that's one of the reasons why I feel like it's so important that we go through the whole Bible and not just dissect certain parts of it. There is a time and a place for that, but we should all at some point go through the entire Bible and be able to see all parts of God's nature and all of the things that He has spoken in the past. I'm not knocking on churches, but I really truly believe that we have fallen away from teaching the word. And there's so much emphasis on make sure you get your three points. And in between the three points, you tell a story and then you put a joke here. And we're more wrapped up in the formula of it rather than just simply bringing the truth. And as we clearly see here, so many people are seeking the word of God. They're seeking out truth and it's becoming harder and harder to find that. I know there's amazing Bible teachers out there and maybe you can actually list some below. If you have incredible pastors who teach the word of God, let let us know who those are because I know people are seeking those out. So if there's anybody out there seeking that, maybe we can help each other out to find a church that is a solid Bible teaching church, one that is teaching the whole Bible and not just the fluffy parts. Not that the Bible's fluffy. I shouldn't use that word. I don't know. Just not the parts that make you feel good. Again, we need that black background so that we can see the brilliance of God. But this part is so necessary because we got to get rid of that darkness in our lives, right? Okay, so I digress, but I do think that's important to talk about. So getting back to the story, he's basically saying you're doomed, brother. Now on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday. So this was a piece of information we didn't know was going to happen on the third day, but it is. He made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to him. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but he forgot him. And I was like, oh man, why did he forget him? Well, in the end, I just think it's important to remember that God can indeed still speak through dreams and visions and even prophetic words. It is spoken in the word of God that those are gifts that he gives to certain people. But as I said before, the only word that we really can truly hold fast to and rely on with 100% certainty is this written word right here. This is his true voice. Everything else needs to be tested and shouldn't be assumed that it is just revelation because someone is saying that God told them. So let's take a look at some deep dive questions. Do you believe that Judah was sincere in offering his last son in marriage to Tamar? What about his confession in the end? Do you believe that was sincere? How do you view Tamar? Do you believe her actions were justified? Have you seen divine favor manifested today? 
Why do you think Joseph interpreted the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker? Do you believe it was for his benefit? And why didn't the cupbearer remember Joseph? So Heavenly Father, we remember who you are first and foremost, and what a gracious God you are. We thank you for redeeming our lives and welcoming us back with grace every time we have taken a detour in life. Forgive us, Lord, where we have partnered ourselves with today's Canaan, coupling our thoughts and actions with things that are ungodly or unholy. And forgive us where we have blatantly dishonored or disobeyed you in any way. We are so grateful for the undeserved mercy that you have continued to give us over and over. But for those who feel as though they have been unjustly treated, Lord, I pray that you will vindicate them so that they are not kept under a dark veil. You have come to set the captive free, and we are so grateful that we are not held down by old societal customs that would leave so many grieving today. I thank you for the freedom to be able to seek out our own husbands and wives, but I pray that you, as our Father, will guide those who are seeking a spouse to the one you have created for them. May we not go seeking them out in the wrong places or with selfish hearts. We know that a marriage is the most holy covenant we can make outside of our relationship with you. So may we be wise in protecting that. And Lord, where we may have given a piece of ourselves away and where maybe our identity may have been questioned or we've recklessly cast things aside, will you restore those missing or stolen pieces? I thank you, Jesus, for making us whole again. We are a new creation in you. And I pray that others will see that as well and that we won't carry the marks of our past. Even where you may have set us free, Lord, please free us in the minds of others as well. Thank you for the favor that you pour out into our lives, especially when we faithfully partner with you and steward both the blessings and the pitfalls in life. We know that you withhold no good thing from those who are righteous and that you give favor to those who diligently seek you. And so I pray that will be us. I pray that we will always be able to recognize your presence that is with us so that we can keep our eyes focused on our haves and not our have-nots. I pray that we will be content in every circumstance and be able to be a blessing to our workplaces, to the places that we walk in, and every place that we dwell. And Lord, we are aware that the enemy will try to detract us from that favor by throwing temptation into our faces. And so I pray that we will be strengthened by your presence daily to flee and to never linger for even a second. Help us never to compromise or even entertain the thought, as innocent as it may seem at the time. Keep us pure in our thoughts and in our actions. And I thank you again, Jesus, for letting us see you through Joseph's life. I pray that we will live out our lives in service to you, just as the way that you did for us. May we use the gifts that you've given us for good and never shy away from sharing the word in its entirety. And I pray for churches today, Lord, to come back to the sweetness of your word, for it is here where healing and salvation comes. We don't need to only hold to formulas or self-help messages, Lord, because it's your word that will do that on its own and so much more beyond that. We don't want to miss out on a single thing, and we especially don't want to miss the importance of understanding that hell is real and repentance is necessary. May we never forget this, Lord, and may we always remember you in both the good times and the bad. I pray that we won't simply come to you when we need to be freed from something, only to forget you whenever our shackles are cut off. May we always treat your body and your blood with the highest honor, coming in communion on a daily basis, not symbolically, but in reality. We wanna walk with you all day, every day, 
trusting in your divine plan for our lives. So I thank you, Lord, for this time, for this word, and for all of these promises which remain true. For you are the same God yesterday, today, and forever. We love you so much. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. to say a prayer and I'm going to put the words on the screen so that you can say them audibly with your mouth because the Bible says that when you believe and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that he died and rose again then you will be saved so we're going to say this prayer together believe it in your heart speak it with your mouth and know that this is indeed the day of your salvation dear Heavenly Father thank you for Jesus Jesus thank you for dying for me I believe that you came, you died, and you rose again. I confess my sins to you today, and I turn from them, and I now live my life for you. I know that I am forgiven of all my sins, so I receive you now as Lord and Savior, and I belong to you, Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.